0: In the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, we are presented with God's wonderful plan through the death and resurrection of Jesus to save for himself a diverse family of saints who are being transformed by Jesus to live like Jesus. This is Galatians, God's very good idea. And we are Mercy Village Church, located in Barbersville, West Virginia. And you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. I remember, obviously it was a little bit later in my life, probably in my teen years, my, my parents finally let me watch Braveheart for obvious reasons. If you've seen the movie, I should wait a while to you see that, young people. But I remember being captured... Uh, Instance. So I'd heard of William Wallace and Isaac the Bruce, but only, like, vaguely. Once I watched the movie, I was like, man, I love this story. This is compelling. They, these folks are are legit. And so I, you know, obviously read some stuff after that. But there's that one iconic scene towards the end when he's being executed. And in that moment, he cries out, freedom, right? I won't imitate it because it'll just it won't do it justice. But in that moment, I remember thinking, like, yeah, to his death, he fought for the freedom of his, of his people. The Apostle Paul is cut from a, a, a similar cloth, but in a realm vastly more important than uh, state or country. When it comes to the freedom that belongs to the children of God, the freedom that is ours in Christ... The Apostle Paul is committed to the death, literally, to fighting for that freedom. That the people of God will will know it, will enjoy it. That's the, that's the thing about true freedom fighters. They're tough people, strong. But what they're fighting for is a peace and a rest and a goodness for the people around them. And Paul is that way. He would die on that hill, by the way, fighting for people to know the freedom that can be theirs in Jesus Christ. He was a true freedom fighter, and he wasn't alone. As we move into chapter 2 of the letter to the churches of Galatia, we'll see that. He, he may have thought he was alone or was afraid that he might be alone, but it turns out there was quite a, quite a merry band of freedom fighters in the New Testament church. So we'll meet the, them today in the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 2. Here's what I'm praying that we see most clearly today. That the freedom that is ours in Christ is worth living for and it's worth dying for. To give that much of our lives away to the freedom that is ours in Christ that is worth every single act of daily dying to self. So in this world, right, from our own hearts first and foremost, our own souls And they're fallen in brokenness. Even for us as Christians, Paul speaks of that battle within. The things we want to do, we don't do. The things we don't want to do, we do. So even we still struggle with uh, desires for freedom in other places. Society will hold up things. Pop culture will hold up uh, things. Our friends, even family, even church leaders will sometimes hold up things and say that they have a promise of true, lasting, deep freedom. They don't. I mean everything from if you have the right amount of financial success or if you have the right experience or if you gain the right influence then you'll truly know freedom and and they're not it's not that they don't provide some measure of freedom some of the things that that society and those around us might hold up but they don't hold ultimate freedom true lasting all encompassing freedom can't be found in And the promises of family or education or or comfort. Your political party of choice cannot bring you true, lasting, deep, all-encompassing freedom, if you haven't figured that out by now. Individual expression, that's something we love right now in our society, that cannot bring you true, lasting freedom. That can only be found in faith alone, in Christ alone, by, by grace alone. That's where ultimate freedom comes from. And so the freedom that is ours in Christ, that true, deep, lasting, all-encompassing freedom is worth living for and dying for. It's worth every single act of daily dying to self. So, Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. By your good grace, fight for our freedom today that we would leave this place today more in touch, more in tune with the freedom that is ours in Christ. By your good grace. Amen. So, Paul launches into another story. He he shared one last week about his conversion towards the end of chapter 1. Now he's going to share another experience that he has, and he, he says that after... Fourteen years, this is after his conversion, dramatically on the road to Damascus, if you remember, knocked off his horse, blinding light, God speaks to him. Before he was on his way to imprison and kill Christians, now he's on his way to proclaim Jesus. He's converted. And fourteen years later, he goes up to Jerusalem again. Uh, last week we saw that he was there for about fifteen days uh, uh, in a early, like about three years after his conversion, he spent about fifteen days in Jerusalem. Uh, with Peter and James, the two apostles, two of the apostles. Now he's going back up. It's the first time he's been since then. And he brings with him Barnabas, who had been with him on his first missionary journey, that had taken him through the churches of Galatia. That's why he talks about him here, because those folks in the churches of Galatia, there were four, at least, churches there, they would have known Barnabas by name. They would have met him personally. They knew who he was. Now, Barnabas is a Jew. He was born and raised a Jew. So uh, he cites him because the people know him, but Titus is going to play an even more important role here because Titus is a Gentile. Syrian descent, likely met Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. So he says, I, uh, taking Titus along with me, Titus is now going to Jerusalem. Some people speculate, and I, I tend to think that this is true because he's mentioned here in the letter as if they know him, that Titus had been a tag-along, on the first missionary journey through, the, through all the churches that he visited, and in particular the churches in Galatia. He was with him there. He'll eventually be left on the island of Crete, not, not to die, but to lead the churches there. Paul will leave him and say, hey, I want you to lead these churches. That's why there's a book that's named after him. It's a letter that Paul writes to Titus while he's there on the island of Crete. In history, Titus is known as the bishop of Crete in church history. And so he brings him with him. He's going to play an important role in, in what happens. So not only is, is he have his team with him, but there's something deeper that's happening. Here's the call on Paul's life to fight for freedom in Christ, to be a freedom fighter for the sake of the gospel. He says, I went up to Jerusalem. Here's why I went, because of a revelation. Now, Paul's life in the area of revelation is unique. Against all of our lives. God speaks to his people still today. The Holy Spirit leads through a a still small voice, through helping illuminate scripture. There's times where Christians will even speak of, I feel God calling me to this or leading me to this. It's very common. But Paul had a direct connection with Jesus in the sense of like uh, Damascus and very very few of any of us have experienced this where Jesus spoke to him in per- like in, uh, audibly right there in front of him whether it was through a vision or or through a dream or out loud we don't know, it's mysterious it's not really explained Paul never tells us what it looked like but he converses and is led and has truth revealed to him directly by Jesus So so that is different than us but we're all called all of us are called and although his may have been They've been unique. We're all called to fight for the truth of the gospel, for the freedom that is ours in the gospel. He says, "I went up because of a revelation set, uh, and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential." So he gets a private meeting together with the elders, the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. We'll learn later that it's a particular James, Peter, and John. So they meet privately, and he lays before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running in vain, that I had not run in vain. Now what he doesn't mean is that he was—he pre- feared that he was preaching the wrong gospel. That can't possibly be true, and it'll play out in the context of, of uh, this passage here. He wasn't worried about whether or not they thought he was preaching an accurate version of the gospel. He believed wholeheartedly that Jesus had given that to him directly. But what he did fear, uh, a commentator, F.F. Bruce, sums up like this. He says his commission was not derived from Jerusalem. So he wasn't worried about whether or not he was on the right mission. That's not what he needed them to affirm. But his mission could not be executed effectively except in fellowship With Jerusalem, he wanted unity, partnership, connection with those folks. It's something he he deeply wanted. The message that he had been proclaiming was that that's what the gospel would do for us, bring about unity amongst the church. And so he's hoping that when he goes to Jerusalem, that they'll say, yes, we're on board too, with you, let's work together, we're uh, on the same mission together for Jesus. But he was afraid, maybe not. Maybe I'll get there and there'll be divisiveness and, and all this message that i proclaimed in these churches that this unifies, well, it'll feel like it's been in vain because everybody will say, well, it can't even unify these churches. He says a divide or even gap between his Gentile mission and the mother church would be disastrous. Christ would be divided and all the energy which Paul had devoted and hoped to devote to evangelizing the Gentiles. Uh, the Gentile world would be frustrated. So he's longing for unity. He's afraid that there won't be unity, but still he's called to fight. You see, Paul was serious about the freedom of Christ, the freedom that is ours in Christ. He wanted the people of God in the churches everywhere to lay hold of the freedom that belongs to us in Jesus, and he didn't want people coming in and undermining that. Paul's a deep, theologian, but at the end of the day, he's a simple man, just clinging to the words of Jesus. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He could talk circles around all of us theologically, but what he was clinging to is something that all of us can grasp. There's freedom in Christ, freedom from sin and death Hell and the grave, we get that. There's a freedom from those things in in Christ. Below that specifically, that means there's a freedom from legalism, which is what the Judaizers would try to bring in. There's freedom from fear, freedom from self-centeredness, from shame, from greed, freedom from anxious churning and anger. In comparison, we could go on and on with the list of all the things that, that the true gospel of Jesus sets us from, Paul believed it with all his heart. And he knew the value. He'd been a self-centered man who was wrapped up in his ethnicity, who was wrapped up in the persecution of the church, who was living for himself and his ideology. And God set him free on the road to Damascus, and so he wants that same freedom for everyone. And he believes it's worth fighting for, and so that's exactly what he does. He does it to the end of his life, and he does it here on this trip to Jerusalem. The two things you have to know if you're going to stand for the freedom that is ours in Christ. You're going to fight for it in your own life. To believe it in your own self and to help others believe that there is true, lasting, all-encompassing freedom in Jesus. That there's going to be both confirmation and subversion of your mission. If that's your mission in this life is to live in the freedom that is yours in Christ, there'll be those who confirm it and there'll be those who, who subvert it. That happens Immediately. But even Titus, who was with me, and this is why he's important to this trip, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And if, that escalated quickly if you haven't been here for the whole letter. But that's what the Judaizers have come in behind Paul's first missionary journey and started telling the Christians there, the Gentile Christians, that they need to do. That they needed to conform to several standards of Jewish living, Jewish religion, or they weren't actually Christians. One of them was circumcision. One was diet, kosher diet, to to follow those. Um, Another was to observe the Sabbath in the same way that they observed the Sabbath. And they're pushing these things. They say you cannot be free in Christ unless you submit to these enslavements, is what Paul would call them. To walk according to these extra things on top of the gospel. So he says uh, he comes and he receives instant confirmation. James, Peter, and John say Titus doesn't need to follow through with that. So he immediately sees that in the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, there's agreement that salvation is not found in conformity to the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So he's confirmed. But look how he handles it, by the way. We tend to long for confirmation, to idolize confirmation, to almost in some ways be enslaved by confirmation because we long for it so deeply. I need to be affirmed by other people. But look how he he talks about these brothers. Sounds real flippant at first, it's not. But he says, and from those who seem to be influential, this is verse 6, what they were makes no difference to me. Whether they were apostles or elders or pastors or or, uh, used car salesmen, I don't care. It makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. He knew that the gospel he was proclaiming was true regardless of the confirmation of these people. Now, he's not... Uh, saying that it's irrelevant that they confirmed it, because obviously he talks about it in his letter. He thought this was an important moment that he should share with the churches of Galatia. He wanted them to know that the Jewish leaders, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, were in agreement with him on grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. But at the same time, he wants us to know that confirmation comes and goes. But what matters, ultimately, is that Jesus, right, is the one at work. That the Bible revealed to us the truth about God, that God is pleased with what we're doing. But not only is there confirmation, and he handles that by not attaching himself too deeply to it or or feeling like he has to have it, but there's also some subversion that arises. Verse 3 again, uh, Titus was, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek, yet... Because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom uh, that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. He says there's this rabble, right, of folks who heard about this meeting between Paul and these apostles and leaders, and they came in and started stirring stuff up. These were the Judaizers. They said, actually, Titus, you need to conform. You can't just trust. It can't be just faith alone and Jesus alone. You need to conform to the Jewish law. And so they push back on that. But watch how Paul responds. To them, we. Notice the word we. If You're going to fight for the freedom that is yours in Christ. You cannot fight alone. So it's a together thing. I'll also say this. If you ever find yourself in a church setting... Fighting for something you call freedom, and nobody else is standing beside you? Like nobody, not even from the church that you're a part of, or or any other churches, and you can't find anyone that stands with you in church history, you might want to re-examine your positions, right? Like there is a sense where uh, sometimes you will stand alone, Right, But that doesn't mean your viewpoint is going to be some brand new thing that you can't find any support for in Scripture or in church history or in other Christians around the world. So there's a togetherness that's required. He says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Submission's a biblical thing. We're called to submit one to another within the church, but not to anything that is anti-gospel. And so as these folks came in and tried to preach something and push something that was against the gospel, Paul says we didn't submit for even one second. And look what the goal is. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It was not about winning a Facebook debate, right? It was not about uh, being proved right for Paul. It was about the good of the people of that the gospel would be preserved for them. And so that's what I want to, to mark us. Paul doesn't cling to affirmation like he has to have it, but he doesn't buckle under the weight of the subversion either. He rests in the truth of the gospel. He embraces his cross, he carries that, and he seeks the affirmation of only one, God and God alone through through Jesus. May we be marked by the same. Real quickly, Paul shows us two ways that those who are truly free in Christ, two things that will mark us. If we're truly free in Christ, these are two things that will be evidenced in our lives. They're not ways to become free in Christ, but they're evidences that we truly are free in Christ. The first one he points to is that those who are truly free and truly fight for freedom are marked by kingdom collaboration. That means that they work together with brothers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to see that play out. That they're not siloed, right? But they're working with others. Now, this requires discernment. Discernment to know who our true brothers and sisters in Christ are. And you're going to see that play out too. This isn't just a willy-nilly, kumbaya, whatever type of thing. This is a discerned but also passionate pursuit of unity. Right? Discernment, so oftentimes, at least in the places I grew up in, was this code word for just being able to stiff arm everybody else away and, like, cause division. Oh, I'm discerning. No, you're a jerk. That's different. That's not the same thing. But discernment is a pathway to unity, it's a good faith search for how unity can be achieved. And there obviously are times where it can't be. But discernment doesn't start with the idea that unity won't be there. Discernment starts with the faith and hope that there can be. And the way we do that is we major on the majors and we minor on the minors. This is what the the folks did. They're they're going to discern two things. Is the true gospel being proclaimed by this man, Paul? So the church of Jerusalem says if we're going to work in unity with him, is the true gospel being proclaimed too? Is it the work of of Jesus? We see the first in verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, they mean something when they say that. It's not just a buzzword. It's a buzzword in, in church societies now. You put gospel on anything. Just tag it on. But they mean the orthodox core teachings of the Christian faith. That now we have even more proof that over hundreds and thousands of years, the church has continued to cling to some core doctrines and beliefs. That's what they mean. He was, had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So they say, we see that the true gospel marks his ministry. For the apostles, the true gospel included the grace of God and faith and a crucified and risen Jesus. And they were all willing to die on that hill. There are theological distinctives that rise to a top level. We have to discern that, though. You have to be able to discern the difference between doctrines and preferences. A lot of churches falter in this area. They take their preferences and they exalt them to the same level as doctrines, and you'll see division divides. We don't need to be discerning if we all share the same preferences. It's a waste of time in the kingdom. We need to be discerning if we proclaim the same gospel. It also requires us to prioritize doctrines, not ourselves, but understand that certain doctrines are clear, crisp, undeniable facts in the Bible, and for thousands of years the church has agreed on it. Those are prioritized. You might call them first issue or or, uh, primary issues in the church. But there are others, other doctrines that are important. We should know them and study them and and even come to a place where we believe a certain way, and that's fine, but they're not worth dividing over. They're not worth division. And then we also have to discern with good faith what someone's stance is on those doctrines. When churches work together, that's what has to happen. But it's always a good faith adventure. It doesn't start with thinking... Well, this is never going to work. We're going to be divided. It starts with hope that unity can be found. So the gospel is that. But listen, all the doctrine, all the theology, all the true gospel teaching can all line up and it still not be of Jesus. He says, For he who worked, Jesus, through Peter, for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me, from mine to the Gentiles. They weren't just discerning if the true gospel was being proclaimed. They were discerning if Jesus was actually at work. Now, if you've been around long enough in church circles, then you know that there are people who can proclaim all the right doctrine, but yet their lives are not marked by the characteristics of Jesus. Just because you can pass the doctrine test doesn't mean that you can pass the fruits of the spirit test. I just, my wife and I started listening to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of, of Mars Hill. Well, if you remember Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Pastor Mark Driscoll was the one who planted that church. It's, it's been an emotional ride for me because I was captured from the first second, by the ministry of Mars Hill. Because the doctrine was there. And not only that, but he was a tough man who, who, who felt, you know, compelling to me in a lot of ways. So I listened to him preach. Man, he was gifted as a speaker. And he delivered the true gospel with his mouth. And they had resources out the wazoo deeply affected ministry, but if you know anything about the story, the whole thing is a pile of rubble. And the reason is because just like me, from a distance, ceased discerning only at doctrine, so did a whole set of leaders beside him. If the doctrine was good enough, they decided to let other things pass. Well, all the while, there was a man who was not displaying the true character of Jesus. Man, in his wake, pain, hurt. That's why it's important that we discern not only doctrine, that the true gospel is being proclaimed, but that also it's truly Jesus' work. So that's what they did here in Jerusalem. They wanted to know both. Is it the true gospel, and is it the true character of Jesus? And so, the result... When James and Cephas, who's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. That we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, don't miss this, though, either. There were still a lot of things stylistically, and there there's still a lot of secondary issues, there were still a lot of leadership issues, there were still a lot of things that they didn't know for sure if they agreed on it but yet they extend the right hand of fellowship. Unity is the goal. It always has been, it always should be. So what will Mercy Village Church look like? Will we be kingdom collaborators to extend the right hand of fellowship to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Will we see that bond, that covenant relationship that is ours with all Christians? Not just those who gather here on Sundays. Will we feel that familial love? Or will we be territorial? Comparing? Cynical? Competitive? It plays itself out so often. It still tries to play itself out in my heart. Will we be silos of spirituality? We're already reaching Barbersville. Why is there got to be somebody else to do this? Or... We're doing it better than they are. Or will we extend grace? And then individually, right? Like, how do you talk? How do I talk? Are we gossiping and demeaning and splitting hairs and making fun? Or, or are we showing honor? Right? Not, without sacrificing honesty, we need to be able to be honest about the, the church, our past experiences in the church. But are we doing that in a way that shows respect and gratitude and honor? Or are we backbiting and gossiping? That's convicting to me. May we be true freedom fighters through kingdom collaboration. Last verse. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. If you're truly free in Christ and you're truly fighting for the freedom that is ours in Christ, you will be participating in kingdom collaboration. You'll be extending grace and love to your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you'll also remember the poor. Early Gentile churches were often wealthier than the churches in Jerusalem. So oftentimes, these new church plants all over the world would have significantly more money than the churches in Jerusalem, which were ministering to a lot of very poor and impoverished people. And so, Paul, for the rest of his life, he didn't just—he's not just blowing smoke when he says he's eager to do that. You'll read in Acts and in some of his other letters that he's constantly collecting and proclaiming that there needs to be assistance sent to Jerusalem. He lives to see the poor people within the, the church ministered to. And so that's the immediate context poor Christians, but Scripture has a broader context of just poor, the poor and the marginalized in general, and we want to be marked by both. We want to model within Mercy Village Church being people who care for Christians, our brothers and sisters who are struggling and who are poor. So might we have our heads on a swivel, get to know people, and as you see people who are struggling, might we meet those needs in their lives. But but not just here, but also outside of Mercy Village Church. And this just sets up perfectly. We have friends in Uganda we support, Sojourn Church in Uganda. And right now they are working, they're in a 42-day lockdown. Nobody can work in the streets uh, without being beaten and arrested. They have 31 families in particular that are part of their church that they've identified who who haven't had food, basic needs, and however long, and they want to provide those for them. Which is beautiful to me, because Sojourner Gone is broke. And yet they have a vision for deep generosity, even though they're Literally. Not broke like American broke. Third world broke. They struggle to pay their bills on a a monthly level. and So they reached out. Uh, I got a letter from from B-Dubs requesting that we participate. And so there's an opportunity today. Now don't feel obligated but this is a very real way to live out this scripture. There's a little box that says Sojourn, Uganda on it, sitting on that table in there. And any penny dime, nickel, dollar, check that you put in there. We'll make sure that that goes directly to them to help serve and love these families. These are dear brothers of mine. I've met many of them. I've ministered alongside them. So if you're able to participate, if you want to do it online, you can too. We'll share it through our socials. If that felt like a guilt trip, I'm sorry. I don't mean it. But I would love to see us have an immediate opportunity to respond to what we hear in the Word of God. Also just ministering to the poor in general. That's why we partnered with Barbersville Community Outreach. We hope to serve a meal with them again in October. If you can be there to be a part of that, we'd love to have you there. We have other organizations globally that we support. 127 Worldwide, Braverly, uh, Alpha Care, Alpha Girl Care, Uganda, that are ministering to the poorest of the poor. That we be those, those people. Right, listen, truly free people who fight... For true freedom in Christ, remember the poor. They're marked by graciously, uh, gracious generosity and they're marked with kingdom collaborations. And there's way more identifiers to those who are truly free in Christ, but these are the two that are highlighted in this passage. But for us to be freedom fighters, we must have in our lives a freedom fighter. Philippians 2 describes him, Jesus. He was raised from the dead in power, and if we are to truly walk in freedom in Christ, it must be in Christ. And if we're truly going to fight for the freedom of others, then it must be in Christ. And if we're going to, in our own lives, believe the promises of God that, that speak to our freedom in Christ, it must be, of course, in Christ, the so child of God today, cling to the true gospel. Link to it. Know it. Learn it. Love it. Not your own personal ideas or, or the things that you tend to maybe idolize or I tend to idolize but actually prioritize knowing who God is and what His promises are. Consume the promises of God. Consume the gospel. Prioritize it. Carve out time in your life to actually know who God is and, and what He promises His people. To Child of God, don't add anything to the gospel. That's the problem of Galatians, is that they're trying to add additional things to the gospel. The gospel plus works. I May mean, We not be guilty of that. None of us would do it in a position paper, but we do it in our lives, oftentimes, raising other things. And I thought with the Olympics this quote was funny, since we're in the middle of all that. I've not watched a single second of the Olympics. I hope that doesn't make me a bad person. Jesus Christ has done everything that needs to be done for our salvation. Everything. If we were to try to add anything to the free and gracious gospel, it would be like taking an Olympic gold medal and having it bronzed. You can't make it any better than it already is. The gospel doesn't need your political party. The gospel doesn't need your social... System. Now, that doesn't mean that like social programs aren't important. We should be involved in those things and engage in those things. And politics could have a place where we should be engaged, right? But they're not the gospel, and we have to remember that as the people of God. And then lastly, fight for the gospel. You're going to feel a desire in your lifetime, if you're anything like me to live and die for a thousand different things. Don't live and die for politics. Don't live and die for family. Don't live and die for comfort or individualism or self-expression. Again, I'm not dogging any of those things, but they're not worth giving everything you have away to. Jesus is. Jackie Hill Perry, who I love, she had this on her instagram this week she says i have no desire to die on hills that look nothing like calvary those are the people we would be so might we might i plead with us today climb the hill of calvary right like in, in in our minds in our hearts and and take up residence in the shadow of the cross and dig our foxhole there and, and take our stand there along our brothers and sisters in Christ. That it would be important to us and we would daily die to self for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. i close with this quote. I love it. It's a little bit uh, maybe artistic, but it's also tough, I guess. I don't know how to describe the writing of N.D. Wilson. But he describes a life lived, dying to self and living to God. He says, take up your life and follow him. Face trouble. Pursue it. Climb it. Smile at its roar like a tree planted by cool water even when your branch is grown. When your golden leaves are stripped and the frost bites deep. Even when your grip on this earth is torn loose and you fall among the morning saplings. Shall we die for ourselves or die for others? For most of us, the question is rarely posed in our final mortal moment, although there is glory when it is. Death is the finish line of this preliminary race. Shall we cross the finish line for ourselves or for others? The choice isn't waiting for us down the track. The choice is now. Death is now. The choice is here. So he says, Lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands. Blister them while you can. You have bones. Make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs. Let them spill with laughter. With an average life expectancy of 78.2 years in the U.S., subtracting eight hours a day for sleep, he says of himself, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me, in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and my children and my neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet afraid to die and therefore afraid to live. And like Adam, I will still die in the end. He says living is the same thing as dying. Living well is the same thing as dying for others. And I would add that being truly free is the same thing as laying your life down being truly free is the same thing as dying to self, taking up your cross and and following after Jesus. The freedom that is ours in Christ is worth living for. It's worth dying for. Not in some massive way, like he says, in some final moment of time where somebody says, do you believe in God? That's going to happen to very few of us. And, And if you answer yes, then you'll be martyred, but daily dying to self. Daily choosing joy and happiness, and gratitude, and thankfulness. Daily rejecting self-centeredness, and greed, and power, and comfort, and giving our lives over daily to others, and primarily to the glory of God, and the fame of Jesus. The freedom that is ours in Christ is worth living for, and dying for, it's worth every single act of daily dying to self. If you're not a Christian, maybe God's calling you into that freedom today. Those who are the sunsets free will be free indeed. John eight thirty six. If you have any questions about what it means to become a Christian, to, to in faith believe in the finished work of Jesus on the cross and be saved, please do not leave today without talking to me or, or Pastor Josh. We'd love to share with you what it means to find freedom in Christ as a Christian. Father, take this and do what I can't do. Burrow it into my heart. Burrow it into our hearts. May we be people who long to walk in the freedom that is ours in Christ and, and people who long to, to see others walk in the freedom in Christ. And might we die daily to self as we pursue that. And may we live for others and primarily live for you to the end. All the way to the end. With every breath we breathe. It's the name of Jesus we pray thanks for listening you can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcast we exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in christ alone and we'd love for you to experience what god is doing as jesus builds mercy village church connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church